Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a good one. A great, well, listen, a great drummer, one of the great rock drummers. Also, uh, an excellent writer, along with my buddy Steve Hyden. He has just written um, a book about his life as the drummer and founding a founding member, even though you you technically weren't a founding member. I mean, you really were a founding member of the Black Crows. There was there was a band called Mr. Mr. Crow's, Crow's Garden, Garden was and first, then, and then and then I I was the first person to actually go. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll hang. I'll do this for real. Right to really what, do what it was a high school band turned into a post high school band turned into the Black Crows. And um, and I feel very connected. So Steve and I have followed each other online for a long time, but I feel very connected. Um, first of all, I, I love the book. As you know, I gave you a blurb, and and I did. You, a- you gave you gave one hell of a blurb. Let's not kid ourselves. Well, I, I, I teared up when I read it. And I'm that's glad a true to hear story. that. Listen, if you can do a thing, <laughs> do a, a thing. A thrill. But I loved reading the book. I read it in a weekend, and um, but part of the reason is it was personal to me because I saw Mr. Crow's Garden at CBGB's in a gig that you talk about. <laughs> I was at that gig with. An, about 14 people. When Haydn told me that, I literally was like, I cannot believe that you saw that show. And then I was at your first show when um, the album came out. You guys played either the Whiskey or the Roxy. I don't know which one it was, but it was a Sunset Strip record mm-hmm. release gig. And then I was at the first gig you played at the Cat Club when you came to New York after the record was Opening out. for Junkyard. I, was, I came to yeah. see... The Black Crows, though, I brought a woman named Debbie Southwood Smith, who was an A&R person, because I knew it would become her favorite band, and it did. I mean, she ended up later signing Josh Homme's band, and I mean, mm-hmm. she she was a very successful A&R person, but this was early on, and I was like, Deb, you're going to love this band, and and so I was at these seminal, really crucial gigs that yeah, you guys I'd say so. played, you know? That CBGB gig in 88 was, I mean, it's, it, I explained this in the book, but it was the worst show we ever played. It was terrible! We, we had just found our stride for real like we were playing shows that we were saying okay man this we have found it and then we came to new york for only the second time and we had three nights in the city before the gig and we were out of our minds i mean you know we would have never admitted it at the time but you know we're in new york you know what i mean let's see if we can't kill ourselves basically and by the time we got there, the gig was almost like, oh, we got to go do this now? We're having too much fun. But I remember George Plus, was at the gig. He George was standing Ticulius. at the bar with me. Of I was course. there at the bar with George. Well, George was, you know, we had already done a round of demos with him. George Juculius was with A&M Records. And it was on that trip to New York. This is November of 88. This is the, this is the week Bush beat Dukakis, just to put it in context for anyone that's old enough to remember. I that. had been in A&R for... Four or five months, you know that was my <laughs> yeah, first yeah, gig yeah, yeah. as an A&R person. I and was you're going, for George. Electra. You like this band? What and the George, hell? I had so George DeCoulis, a legendary person. Um, now, I mean, one of the great music supervisors, but a great record producer, a great A&R person. Mm-hmm. He, but we were all very young then. In fact, here's the thing: I had booked George's high school band was called Lifeline, and I had booked his band to play like gigs for high schoolers in the afternoons. He played bass for this band, and yeah, so. I knew George from when we were both in high school on Long Island. That's incredible. So I'm standing with him, and he's like, this is going to be the next big band. Yeah. And Chris didn't move at all yet. No. He wasn't a performer. Not at all. And, well, and you not guys only sounded that, like a knockoff of R.E.M. or something back then. In the well, we were, we were on our way out of that. We certainly sounded that way in 1987, if you'd seen the band, which with good reason. You know, I mean, I... 
I'm a card-carrying member of the I Wouldn't Play Music If Not For R.E.M. My club. favorite band of all time. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm i in 11th grade, and my brother comes home from college with Chronic Town, and he goes, hey, check this out, or right at the start of my senior year, so 83, and 82, I mean, summer. And then by the time they opened for the English Beat in April of 83 at Vanderbilt, you know, I, it's religion, you know, for real. So that was, I, I was obsessed with music my whole life, but when I saw R.E.M., I... It was the first time I ever said out loud, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to play in a band. I have to be in a band. Like it, that was what it did to me. And I had a lot of other bands at that time. And, you know, U2 early on and, and The Alarm and Jason the Scorchers and all the, all the early 80s. I saw The Alarm play. Mostly Southern live. indie, you know, the DBs and, and a lot of things out of Nashville because I was up saw in Kentucky. But, um, but that REM show... Uh, April 5th, 1983. That was it. I mean, that was literally the, the beginning. And then the next few years were a series of frustrating shows where I went, why am I not doing this yet? Why am I doing, you know? And it wasn't until I moved to Atlanta that I actually did. You know, that I, I a buddy called and said, come on, man, let's do this. And I was just dying for a reason to drop out of college. I mean, I was, I was in my course, senior right. year. Yeah. Like, if I don't do this soon, it's never going to happen. And I already felt late. You know, I was 21. And I'm like, shit, I missed it. I That's missed funny. it. That's funny, um, but when you but you guys uh, and I want to get back to this gig. I want yeah. to start somewhere else. I want to get back to the gig because the difference in in that gig, which even if you say you guys were on your way out of the REM thing, I didn't know the band, and I I yeah. remember it all very clearly because of George, mm -hmm. because there was something happening up there on the stage. Um, but Rich was still playing this arpeggiated. It still felt like yeah. a little bit like mm -hmm. REM to me. That's the take sure. that I had that night, and then. It was like the deal Robert Johnson made at the Crossroads because mm -hmm. when I next saw you guys yeah. play, Chris was the most compelling front man in the world. Yeah. And that had happened in uh, two years, year. right? Uh, well, for, yeah, a little over a year. Yeah. And I'd never seen anything like that. Well, the, well, it's, I mean, I, you know, I'm cursed with this very linear memory, but the, the, the calendar year 89 started with us. Without trip to CBGB, George said afterwards, okay, I'm leaving A&M Records. And we're devastated. He goes, but I'm signing Rick Rubin's Rick Rubin, got a label. Yeah. I'm going to move to L.A. and we'll make a record then. And so, you know, we left New York on the heels of the worst gig imaginable, knowing there's industry people there. I mean, that's what it was. It's ACBGB. And we're dumb enough to let that really, really, really freak us out. And then B, um, I look around and like you said, there's 14 people there. But we know that nine of them work at record labels and, or, or their agents or whoever. You know, we were from a place, we didn't do industry gigs. You know what I mean? That was not part of our scene. So we were a little in our heads. Um, and we, two nights later at the QE2 in Albany, New York, we literally played the best show we had ever played up to that point. We showed up in Albany to play for six people, including the club staff, and put on a, the, that was the show for the ages. And honestly, that gig, the following Sunday after CBGB, was, was huge for us to drive all the way back to Atlanta going, Okay, we actually we we got this. But George had kind of kicked your asses too, right? In the book, you talk about how oh, yeah. George was not. Well, we played here earlier, fall of spring of '88. We did our first ever New York show, and George came in and met the band. And the first thing he said was, "You guys aren't very good, but <laughs> was who does the Stooges and Aerosmith?" I mean, it was very. You know, we all are like. <laughs> Thank you for telling us we suck. We know that, but we're glad you know that. Because up until then, everyone always, they see Chris, he could sing, yeah. and he had a presence. Even though he wasn't a performer, he always had a, a vibe. I mean, you could tell something was going on. He drew people's attention. So we had label people talking to us, but George was the first guy who immediately said, 
you don't know what you're doing. You, you got all these elements that are good, but you don't even you don't know what's good and what's bad. Like basically, is what he said. And you he, guys were able to take that criticism. Only from him. Anybody else that had ever talked to us like that, we would literally go, yo, really? Well, fuck you. And then George said it. And, you know, well, you know George. I mean, you, Brian, know George. But anybody that meets him. And at the time, I'm 23. He's 24. You know what I mean? He was just like us. Oh, yeah. And he's just this big, heavy dude with really long hair. And he's never shaved. He looks crazy. And he was, like, laughing. And he knew all this. Honestly, between Stripes and Caddyshack and Animal House, all those the shtick, we're all running immediately. We're all, and we were always those guys. Monty Python, we had, we talked in movie and TV language yes. all the time. And George jumped right in with us. And it was like, oh, that's what we would be if we were from Long Island. You know what I mean? Yeah, we're that's these guys really funny. From, from down south. And, and, and we had not really met anybody from New York that we connected with ever. And he was the first George, person. First guy. And so we drove home. We drove to Atlanta four days after meeting George from Albany. I mean, literally, like, that's the guy. That, we're we're going to go make records guy. with this person This somehow. is our guy. We have found the guy. And we all felt that from the jump. And you didn't even have the songs yet, really. No, we had, had She Talks to Angels. You know, which yeah, that is, early version outlier. of it, which you said and, um, nobody knew. And then, was... and, then, and then right around then, we were putting together Jealous Again. But it wasn't finished. We just had the, we had the, the verse and, the, you know, we had pieces of what became Shake Your Moneymaker laying around. And George was huge. So that's spring of 88 the first time, but when you saw us in the fall, we were very we were coming together. By the time we hit 89 and we knew sometime in this year we're making a record, we really got serious and and Chris allowed himself to start to perform. You know, it's a weird thing to go I see that thing inside me. It, it was one thing as a drummer to go, I can fucking do that and spend years in my own head. Yeah. And then get into a band and start playing clubs and then I'm like, I think I'm going to play a fill tonight. <laughs> you know, I remember thinking that like I'm going to I'm going to play a Phil, for right. fuck's sakes. You yeah. know? It's very different when you're the singer. Phil Rudd still you're, hasn't it, said that to himself. No, he hasn't, and thank God. Yeah, I agree. Because what would happen if he did? No. We would all, we, the whole world would stop spinning. And, um, and so, you know, when I look back and I think about Robinson, to, to stand there and literally go, I'm the, the same thing I'm feeling, but, then, but I'm the guy standing there with just a mic stand, and I've got to address an audience. You either do that instinctively or you don't. And for him, he didn't. It took it took a while to figure out. Oh, I got to be that guy, and then and then when we met Pete Angelus, then that that was the final. I mean, that was like that was like going. That's like going up to John as, Wooden and going, "How do I shoot the ball?" Well, you know? as um, so the the Pete Angelus stuff in your book made me so happy to read because he becomes your manager and really like your partner in a lot of sort of figuring out how the band can work. Then there were times when sure, you felt sure. he was locked in with the brothers and against uh, you and he had to make some every, very difficult phone calls to you. Yeah. But it seems in the book there are moments where you alone um, among the guys in the band understood that you should follow Pete's vision. Right. It seems like you go recognize it because the first, my first favorite band was Van Halen and so mm -hmm. his relationship, <laughs> yeah. that was my first favorite band yeah. was Van Halen yeah. and then it was R.E.M. And yeah. then, um, and, and I spent years obsessed with Van Halen and the whole myth of Van Halen and right. what Pete Angelus did with Roth. I always wondered how that all transpired. And I got yeah. such insight into right. it through the way he talked to you guys. Yeah. Well, he, I mean, the thing that blows me away now is we met Pete and he was 34, 33. And he'd already lived a life. He'd already done the Van, he'd already done Van Halen and Dave. You know what I mean? He and already directed those videos, right? Absolutely. And was in those he did, videos. He did all those. He directed all of them, you know, yeah. the, the Van Halen and the Dave videos. 
And well, I mean, he was in film. He directed school. the last immigrant grocer on earth video. Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah I mean, yeah, he did yeah. all that of stuff. Of course, yeah, that's yeah. all him. And he was, yeah, he's like running a spotlight at the Whiskey a Go Go in film school. And Van Halen walks in, and he gets into an argument with Dave. That's how they met. And then he's telling him, you know, he goes from th- this guy running a spotlight at the Whiskey to and and Dave giving him grief and Pete giving it back. And then they go outside, and he's like, "What's your fucking problem?" And Pete basically goes, "You guys suck. You have no up." And 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 again, for whatever reason, Dave goes, "Well, what would you do differently?" And Pete, "Oh, well, this, 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 and this." And I mean, it's the, just like us with George, just like us when we met Pete. There's certain people that, for whatever reason, you just thank God have the sense to get out of your own fucking way and go, "Oh, yeah, okay." And and as I said, for Mister Crow's Garden, there was no one until George that we ever listened to one word they said. And how old were the guys in the band then? Uh, when we met George, you said you were 24. When we met jo- when we met George, I guess I was 23. So Chris was 21, and Rich was 19, 18 right. still maybe. Or no, 19. and which bass player was that then? The first the, the first time it was oh shit. Well, <laughs> the first time we met George it was a guy named Ted. When we came back to CBGB, it was our buddy Scott, and by the time we made the record, it was Johnny. Right then, it was the third bass yeah, player. Yeah, the, the, we had bass players. Man, yeah, like Spinal door. Tap drummers. That, that was basically. it. Yeah. Um. All right. I, here's where I want to um. I have a bunch of things I want to ask you that are instead of just rambling around here. Um, what do you think makes someone? Uh, and this, these are ways uh, to get into. I mean, I saw you already reading my questions upside down, so you know. But what 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 makes someone a good drummer? Do you think? Like, what does it feel? That's, that's it. 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 I. I. One thousand percent. Look, I, like Van Halen's your first favorite band. I'm a. I'm. I'm obsessed with the Beatles to this day, and I was. Six, and my brother handed me three Beatles records. I had a Bee Gees album. First album, two years on Bee Gees, Lonely Days album. Won it as a door prize. Took it home, obsessively listened to it until one of my brothers, I'm the youngest of eight kids, said, turn off the fucking Bee Gees here. And he handed me Help, Meet the Beatles, and Rubber Soul. Awesome. You know, I mean, which is, and by the way, I still love the Bee Gees. I was going to say, the Bee Gees albums, are, no, I mean, it's no, amazing. Uh, dude, I listen to Bee Gees started. all the time, and the old Bee Gees are incredible, too, am, from the 60s. I am so down go, with the go Bee listen Gees. to massachusetts if you don't know the Bee Gees people. It, it's trust me it's uh yeah. it's it uh, uh, look at me like if you only know I, the I, I disco legitimately stuff. have goosebumps because yeah. i'm such a Bee Gees fan Bee Gees, unbelievable but you were you were starting to answer this question of what makes someone a good so i'll I just go back the to Beatles this and then i'll move on so i i put on help first and when tick i was i'm six when ticket to ride started I just, my arms just started moving. You know, I, I, I invented air drumming. I'm like, what, a, why, what am I doing? And I, that's a real thing. I'm in the room next to the pool table going, oh my God, what is this? And so I obsessively, you know, listened to Beatles albums for a few years. I mean, that was it. And that's six, seven, eight, nine years old. And then I got it. And then there's, you know, and then All Things Must Pass is in the house and Imagine. And then I went and got Red Rose Speedway and blah, blah, blah. And so by the time I branched out and started, because li- then when we does were- Zeppelin happen? Way late, twenty-one. When I no. moved to Atlanta, yeah. Did you know Zeppelin as a kid? It, I knew, I knew it because it was always on. So I'm living just south of Baltimore till I'm ten, and I'm obsessed with the Beatles. And then I'm starting to branch out. But my older brothers, I had one brother who just had you know Al Green and and Motown, and then I had a brother that was all Yes and prog rock. And then everybody else was somewhere in the middle. So I had a lot in the house to pick from. And then when I was 10, I moved to Kentucky to a really small town. So the four youngest kids moved. The four oldest ones were already East Coast. They're out. And when I got to a small town in Kentucky, the kids that were driving around listening to Zeppelin 
and then ACDC and Skinner. They're they're all the guys in the pickup trucks that wanted to kick my ass because right. I played soccer and I'm from Maryland. You know what I mean? Like so, yes. I had a real. Even at the age of ten, there was a real divide. Like I suddenly, rock music was like, "Hold on, that's crazy people music," and I'm gonna sit here with my Beatles records and just be in the basement. Right. So I really dug in hard on the stuff I was into, and then, then I ninth grade, Tom Schneider has U2 on, and I'm like, "Hey, there's an Irish band," you know. And then, and then the B52s and Devo on Saturday Night Live or whatever it was, New Wave hit me really hard. Right. Um, because I wasn't into the rock, you know what I mean. So to answer your question. I didn't dig into Zeppelin until I was 21. I mean, I was aware of it. I listened to it, and I thought it was great. But I wasn't digging in until I'd already... I just bought a drum kit for the first time, and that's when I started putting on headphones and going. And But so the, same was, way that, the same way that I was always a Ringo guy. See, Ringo is the alpha and the omega to me right. to this day. And But right behind that is Bonham, and it's... And it's Bonham, not... Um, the rhythms so the, for you this the next rhythm section was Bonham and John Paul Jones yeah, yeah, yeah. That, not that. Adam and Larry no cuz even no, though you no, two no, was your no, band no, no for sure or for that matter you know Bill and Mike and REM yeah. and I'll tell you why and this sounds terrible but when I first got my kit I was you know I could play poor versions of REM and U2 songs already. I couldn't do Bonham. You know what I mean if if that makes sense it's like yes. you know it's like I could see how you could be REM the reason REM impacted me so much beyond that I just love everything about them, that was they opened a door. But when you're a kid and you see Earth, Wind, and Fire, you're like, how do you do that? Right. The, uh, the Fool in the you, Rain you, shuffle you see, is not you know, a possibility you know for you. Like, yeah, exactly. As and, a kid. I mean, and as a kid, you know, when you're a Beatles fan, you don't know. You, yeah, I know they played the Cavern, but all I saw was Ed Sullivan. And but what all are I these drummers? The Here's Bowl. what I'm trying to get to. What are all these drummers? So Bono and Bill Berry and. Um, uh, who, whichever of these other mm-hmm. drummers, yeah. Ringo, right, um, Steve, uh, Jeff Porcaro, whoever right, the sure. great, what is it that the greatest drummers to you, Neil? You know, why are both Neil Peart and Phil Rudd great drummers when there's everything about them is yeah, different? and Phil Rudd's another one that should be noted too. Well, it's just to me, it's all about feel. Every drummer feels differently. I can go play Fool in the Rain, and I can go play the Sergeant Pepper reprise, the opening beat. Right. It doesn't feel like Ringo. It it's close. And I'm a good, I can ape a lot of drummers, and I'm yeah, pretty good at it. you're a top studio but, player, but too. Not, you can do anything you want. But, but it's not, but it doesn't feel are you talking the about same is it, in, um, is it an internal meter yes, kind of a yes, thing? Yes, it, it, uh, it's 100% It's an what internal it is. meter that some people bon, Bonham's just Bonham's right hand is somehow behind his own right foot. He can't help it. He doesn't know, what, you know, the, the way, it's the way I hear it. Yeah, of course. And I don't know technical musical drumming terms. When I hear Ringo, and, you know, you can explain the whole fact that he's a left-handed guy playing a right-handed kit and he starts his tom fills with his left hand so there's this eighth of a millisecond hitch that slows the fills down that you can that just do, feels right doesn't feel quite right you know steve Which jordan does a whole great. video where he explains it like that very thing right um but 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 drummers Another to legendary me, great drummer, drummer drummers steve to jordan. me are give me seven seconds and i'll know if i'm gonna care or not it, 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 that's all it takes. Right. Like you hear seven seconds of Steve Gadd. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's a, it, that's a tremendous example. Yeah. He's yeah. Sick. Because for me, the feel like yeah. as a non, yeah. I can play drums, but I'm not a drummer. Yeah. I'm not a player, right? I can play a little yep. guitar. I'm not a player. Right. But, um, but there is something about a groove that Steve mm-hmm. Gadd's playing sure. or Jeff Porcaro for me or mm-hmm. Bonham yep. where, and for me, Pert in a different way where you're just like, you can't help moving. Yeah. 
But I, we'll, it's funny because I'm not. See, I was never a Rush fan. Right. And and I always say Neil Neil and I play different instruments. I, I don't. That's awesome. I, that that, that is doesn't nothing, make any sense to you. None whatsoever. You don't. So to you, you don't understand why he's a great drummer. Why he's oh, no, considered. No, no. Oh, no, no is, I, do you understand, understand why he's it. considered a great uh-huh, drummer? Oh, of course, absolutely understand it. I d- it doesn't move me internally. I That's can the I thing, can appreciate Rush. And I do, and in fact, were you ever to gig with them? Did you ever I, watch them? Well, this is I. So mid '90s, I'm in I'm in Atlanta still, and my buddy Ray Compton, who was like our tour accountant for, uh, calls me. He goes, I'm at the Omni for a couple nights of Rush, and I'm like, I'm not. I don't want to see Rush. I don't care. Right. And then I go, wait a minute, hold on. Are they doing the same set every night? And he goes, Yeah. I said, Okay, tell me what time the drum solo starts. And meet me at the door, and I'm gonna. So I set this because I used to be at the Omni, the old Omni in Atlanta. You know, I, I there was a parking space. If you knew where it was, you'd go right up the stage door, and I had to hook up. Of course. And so he calls me the next day. He goes, 9.45. Be at the door at 9.35. I said, okay, cool. And I drive down, and at 9.35, he opens the door, takes you know, hands me a beer, and I walk right up to the side of the stage, and within three minutes, bang, drum solo. And I, I stood there going, what the fuck? I mean, it was just incredible. And I'm like... See, that's what I would do if I had three arms and three legs. Okay, I get it. You know, it was yeah. one of those like, holy shit. So, and I, I mean, I loved it and it blows me away. But I, but I, like I said, I look at it and I go, okay, that's a different, inst- that's like me watching a guy play bagpipes, which can make me cry, at, 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 you know, in two seconds. Right. I but, don't understand but, but, but it. But from a place of feel and pocket, you don't relate to it in the I don't, same not way. To, I don't, I don't, it doesn't make me feel like it makes me want to do that. If, does that make sense? Like I, yeah. you know. It I does. Can, I mean, I love Rush. I love Neil sure. Peart. And for me, there's a, I, my head starts moving to yeah. the groove in a certain way right, when right. I'm listening. Right. Like right now, I ha- if I put on Tom Sawyer. Yeah. Or um, Spirit of Radio. Yeah, there's just a pocket there that yeah, I sure relate to. Sure, sure. Th- for whatever reason. Well, the, and, and part you, of it is uh, there, there are bands that I go back now and way after the fact. I can totally, you know, I, I it blows me away. You know, I'm like, and 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 I should say, like, if I I can, if I listen to Rush, if I really listen, I can get lost in it. Absolutely. But when it's on, I, it doesn't like if I'm walking through a room, I just keep. Walking. No, this is one of the great things if about I'm, music. If I'm walking through a room. And Love Hungry Man from Highway to Hell is on. I will stop in my tracks and well, go, listen, fucking listen to that. You me too. I mean? Walk All Over You was the track that sure. got me from ACDC. Yeah. I was Riff a Rap kid. was the one. When I, I heard Walk All Over You and I heard those drum fills, yeah. those, yeah. Doom, doom, I can still do them <laughs> yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, sure, you sure. Know, uh, those drum fills, I remember, were one of the things. I was 12 or something or 11 and I was like, what well, the fuck? Well, Riff Raff and Ain't Talking About Love were two songs that I remember. One ACDC, one Van Halen. That I remember in real time that were challenging my very compartmentalized lanes for what was cool to like and what wasn't cool to like. Yes. Like I, you know, it was weird. Cause like at one point in my life, my two favorite bands were Devo and Earth, Wind and Fire. Those were concurrent and that made sense to me, but I couldn't admit that I liked Van Halen. I wouldn't have admitted that I liked ACDC. I had my own Even though bizarre, you did. Yeah. Well, I would hear, I'm telling you, I heard ain't talking about love and was like, Oh, I mean, I was right, like, love. Oh, fuck. I can't like Van Halen. That's dumb California rock, right. you know, in my head. And and um, I just had, uh, I was the worst about compartmentalizing those lanes about music. I, so I, you were I, worried about feeling like the right kind of cool somehow. Yeah, because I was the farthest thing from, I mean, I'm in a this tiny town of Kentucky 
And and I just felt like an outlier the whole time. I moved there at ten, and my first thought was, when can I get out of here? Right. And I sadly spent consciously 10, you knew that very much so. I moved there in September of 1975. Okay, how old were you in 1975? I was nine. Okay, well I just turned ten, and we drive. Right, I'm in, 53. How old? I'm are you? 54. Right. So yeah, we drive I'm in from nice. from Severna Park, Maryland, two day drive, pull into Hopkinsville, Kentucky. It's September. And we drive past the mall, and there's a big handmade wooden sign, and it says, only two more weeks until Jaws. It hadn't gotten there yet in September. And even at 10, I thought, where the fuck (laughs) has my family moved me? And the last thing, my brother Tom, one of my older brothers, who was always in garage bands, played guitar, and a big part of me thinking I could play drums, I'll be in a band with him. The last thing he said as we were driving away, he goes, you know, they don't have rock and roll music in Kentucky. It's just going to be country music from now on. Families are great. Yeah. And I got Of course, that wasn't car- true. But no, yeah. but I got in the car thinking, I had two days in a car thinking, oh my God, thank God. Wait, do we, we have our albums, right? I packed them on the truck, right? You know, and then I get to this town. They don't even have Jaws yet. You know, and I'm just thinking what? So I was like exit strategy from the day right, I got so there. So music became so sort of music, a way to escape and a way to think about two your place happened. in the world. Right? Two things happened. All the OCD kicked in, (laughs) looking for some control, counting to four, everything was numbers and steps, and records. That was it. Like, I got Wings Over America for when it came out, like, when I was 11 or 12. And I'm telling you, I sat in my basement and listened to all six sides over and over and over. I went so far as to get two tennis rackets and a fix, a double, to play air guitar with, two of them, so it's like the double neck. (laughs) <laughs> you know, records were, and I was I was playing sports, and I went to a small school, and I had friends. I was not at all like, you know, anyone else was like normal kid having a good time, and I was. But the only Meanwhile, time you were I was, evening things because yeah. you had you were yeah. oh. making everything even. Oh, and, dude, trust and me, I stuff. can't. We Are have, you, did the, you get past it? Did you do yeah. cognitive behavioral therapy? Only took a What'd couple you nervous breakdowns. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, the one I left out of the book in 1998 was when it all cleared up. Like I, I hit, I had a whole complete crash and just everything everything just melted away and i just lost it and 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 i had to fit you know i I had a i write in the book about you know the band like freaked me out early on i had a big big break but then about six years later i had a second one that had nothing to do with the black that was all me that was a lifetime of not not facing a lot of shit yeah sure and and when that one happened all the ocd stuff 99% 99% of it cleared away. Right. Like I could now tell you what I used to do and then I will leave here and I won't start doing it again. Yes. But it's a real OCD thing to say uh, it all went away and then having to tell me it was only 99%. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's what I know because yeah. I've had people in my life who have it. I yeah, understand man. the way that that all works. No, I used to, I, I spent years counting syllables and making sure that every sentence I said ended on the four. I would add a just or a then that, you know, I would add that's words. So- when I learned how to I mean, type, it almost killed me because then I would type everything I said the in my head had for to, years. Right. Oh, oh, the rhythmic typing thing was, I was the best typist in my high school. It was like, hey, you're really good at this. And I'm like, yeah, it's fucking great. Yeah, because yeah. I'm going out of, yeah. my, out of my mind. Yeah. But I guess what I, the question, when I think about the way those drummers fit into their bands, it's hard to picture someone else that, in that well, spot. Well, that's and that's what I want to get to that's about the simplest what a drummer, what makes someone a good drummer for a particular band. That's the simplest thing to me is, um, and it's the kind of thing that, you know, a lot of people saw ACDC without Phil Rudd and a lot of people love those shows and they were sort of great shows. But the fact of the matter is they, they didn't, to me, 
And we opened for ACDC in 91, and, and Chris Slade was playing. He's a great guy and a fucking amazing drummer. He's the bald guy or whatever? Yeah, the bald yeah. guy. Yeah, who, that's not who, ACDC to me. Who, by the way, Tom Jones is original drummer. They grew up together that's in awesome. Wales. Uh, and they, that hard to handle, if you ever heard Tom Jones's version from 67 Oh, I've Vegas, heard it many that's times. That's Chris Slade. Yeah, right. And swinging like a motherfucker. Then he joins ACDC. And they're and, and like, oh, the guy Simon Wright, before him in ACDC. It's still ACDC, but it's not what, to me, makes... I'm obsessed with bands. I'm obsessed with chemistry and the fact that certain people get together. And I've always said about ACDC, they didn't sit down and write out, let's let's try to find a groove that just does this. That's just, those guys got in a room, and the more they played, and the more they played, and once Cliff joined the band, the bassist, yeah, Cliff Williams, this thing happened that... For everyone who says those are simple songs, you're right. Now you go try to feel, try to find that vibe and feel. You can't. I mean, you just can't do it. I saw the Zeppelin show at the O2 in 2007, and there were moments. And and Jason, you know, is the right man for the job, but he's not the right drummer because there's no one that's the right drummer. That's John Bonham's chair. Yeah. And that's not a slight. It's just the reality is Jeff Porcaro is the only person who could have come close. As good as that was, as good as that was. And there were moments like in Black Dog during the verse when it would lock, and I'm looking at Jimmy and John Paul Jones, and I'm like, man, this is fucking. Where were you sitting? Right to the. Jimmy totally hooked us up. Me and my wife are sitting like with his family, looking, you know, stage left, like eye level, one or two rows up above him, right? We were right. I don't want to spoil. So for. Um, my biggest rock and roll regret is that Cliff and Peter offered me tickets to that show and I yeah. didn't go. And I, I just couldn't get myself to fly to England for yeah. it. Yeah. I have just tremendous regret because I never saw Zeppelin because of how old I am and how yeah. old I was when, when... My wife's first show Bonham when she was dies. 12 was Zeppelin 77. See, I, I was only 11 then and mm-hmm. I just wasn't going to Zeppelin then. I didn't know Zeppelin. You know, Zeppelin she didn't matter to me at that, 11. You know, yeah. Uh, I cared about other music at that age. Like I did see... Um, I saw Waylon and Willie at that age, which I'm really glad oh I got God, to see. That's pretty great. My dad took me, and it was incredible. But in your book, and I don't want to spoil this, so people, um, if you care about rock and roll at all and the history of rock and roll, and if you care about dysfunction, this really is the book for you. <laughs> the, the story that's sort of like in the book, this mystery to you, that has to do with Jimmy Page, uh-huh. that you don't give the punchline to till late in the book. Yeah. Um, and how and why his relationship with the Black Crows crumbled, mm-hmm. how he saved the Black Crows and then the yeah. relationship crumbled, is so powerful. And just, it's it's a great thing you and Steve Hyden did in, in writing the book, which is there's a, that element in the middle of that book is like a real thriller element yeah. of the book, yeah. which is, what the fuck happened? Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what it was like to live through that without that answer and sort of knowing, I mean, I won't spoil it, but I'll say at a certain point, Jimmy Page is with you guys and then he leaves and mm-hmm. he gives sort of a reason you don't believe. Later you find out what the real reason is, but you have this sneaking suspicion the whole time Well, something happened. Yeah, and and I will say, now he did have it, he, the, the issue he gave, he did have it, his back was well, fucked sure. up and he did have to get it dealt with. I mean, I don't, and that's, and that's important. However, yeah, yeah, fun times. Did you um, send him the book? Yeah. Did he? I haven't. I haven't heard back. But you sent it to. Well, you oh, did send it to yeah, Jimmy. Of course. Um, all right. So, what made you a good drummer for those guys? Um, a few things. One, I bought. I I, I had just started playing for real. Like I, I mean, I talked. I, I joined a band. I moved to Atlanta to start a band, and within a few months, started playing with Chris and Rich. And so I'd only been playing for a few months. Rich was learning how to play himself. All those years you I were was, air guitar and saying you were going to play, I want to say, Satan, that you didn't have a kid at home. 
Oh, or never. You... No, I, the first drum kit I ever owned was when I got to Atlanta and bought one. At what age? 21. That's the first kit you owned? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you know that you could, like, um, play the hi-hat and, the, and I, the kick drum? Well, I had sat at a kit. You know, I, I was in high school. Uh-huh. And uh, my senior year, I think, I went to a friend's house, and he had a drum kit in the corner. And I go, hey, let me try that for a minute. And I just immediately – and uh, and it's the guy that I moved to start a band with, Clint Steele, my buddy. And and he was a fanatic Zeppelin guy, and he had a stereo with headphones. And I put on a cassette tape, and the first thing I, pl- I did was try to play along to Cashmere, which started fine and went off the rails real fast. But, you know, I was like – and I, but but just the idea of where your feet go, what they do, everything. I was like, I fucking knew I could do this, and That's you know, awesome. in four in fourth grade, I got a snare drum in the school band. It lasted like a week, and then I was bored to tears. So, but I I, I had always paid enough attention to understand. You know, I knew what a paradiddle was. You know what I mean? I never did one. But you I knew, knew you could keep were. your left foot going yeah. in eighth notes oh, and yeah. that you could do I never uh, listen, syncopated I would, with your right listen, foot and I it would, wasn't going to be a problem? No. I would go see bands. I would listen to records. And that's it was just all, it really was the only thing in my life that I just knew. And I just knew it. I, from, from the time I got Ticket to Ride, I was like, I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do. makes sense to me. So, so. So yeah, you'd just been playing for a few months. You're answering yeah. why you were the right drummer for and these guys. And you know, Rich had been playing for a little while, but but we were kind of learning together. You know, we, we learned how to play together and and individually at all at the same time. Like, wh- how do we make this song not sound horrible? And uh, maybe I should try not to speed up. You know, I mean, we're having all these yeah. really rudimentary conversations. And then, but the main thing is when we met George. And he was, he's the guy that pointed out like, well, you do this really well and you do that really well. Stop doing these other things. Just focus on that. And that, that, that year of 1988, everything just fell into place. It's like the, we had, we had fucked around long enough where we had all, we all, we all, I think Rich had the same thing with guitar. Like, I know I could do that. And obviously Chris could sing. And we, we, we were all at a similar level and we had, we had such a belief which goes really far, which is, you know, and I used to say, we're the worst band in the world. We're the worst band in Atlanta and we're the best band in the world because I really believed I yeah. could see like, fuck, if we ever figure this out, we're going to be bad. You know, like we can get there. And we just had such a sense of, we, we never let a, a, a minor thing like getting the electricity turned off. Stop. You know, it was like, well, whatever, just borrow someone else's, you know, heater. But how did you see a role about- in that band from the beginning? Uh, it, was it as a mediator? Like, what what was the place was, of was, the drums and of Steve as the drummer in the band? It was there was some of that. Uh, yeah, the, you're gonna say was I the mediator? <laughs> I mean, there's some of that. It was definitely. I I mean, I have five brothers. I, it didn't freak me out that I met brothers who fought about everything. I was kind of like, I, I I see this. I I you know, in my mind, and I'm sure they'd say the same about me. I read them both right away. I saw exactly what was going on. And it and I I just I just understood it. The music they were playing, the music my first band was playing, Rare My Hope. They were all into Zeppelin, and and like when I heard the first Jane's Addiction record, I was like, that's where Mary My Hope is going. That and and when you're just starting out, it was kind of beyond me. It, I don't know that it was, but I thought it was. The fact was, I didn't feel as confident with that music. And then I was sitting in with Mr. Crow's Garden the first time, and I was like, oh, I can play this all damn day. It was real straight. Mr. Crow's Garden was all about the Dream Syndicate, the Long Riders, REM, a lot of bands like that, the Birds, and 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 specifically just the drum parts. The what I had to do, 
I was already able to do. The groove made sense. That yeah. groove made sense to yeah. you. And, and, and just the parts. Like, technically speaking, I could play those parts. I didn't feel like... Like in Marry My Hope, I was like, I gotta, it, I could have used some Neil Pert licks. I could have used some Bonham triplets. I could have used things that I didn't have yet. Right. And I could feel it. I was like, fuck, they need a different drummer. No, I and remember. Mr. Rose Garden made sense. At to that me. time, I signed a band that didn't become big when I was in it, but had this drummer that's one of the best drummers in the world, Frank Farrar, who is Guns N' Roses drummer now for years. And he was in the cycle. Oh, I've always wondered where that guy came from. That big yeah, guy, yeah, yeah, Frank yeah, Farrar, yeah, yeah. Yeah. he was in this little band in New York called The Beautiful that were like a Jane's Addiction. Yeah. This guy, Jonathan Lacey, ran that band. He's Texas, from Texas, and Frank was in that band. Yeah. And he was able to do all that stuff. Right, right, right. And then he started yeah. off on that in- incredible path. But I remember he had a toolkit that was just huge. You could do Yeah, anything. right, right, right. And it was like finding the right place no, for my it. You're saying your toolkit wasn't huge. Mine was really... My toolkit was I was, obs- I was obsessed with it feeling right. And I did... I mean, I really did when I would listen to drummers and see bands. I was obs- well, and and again, I say again because I've said this so many times. But I played basketball, and I always view a band as a basketball team. And my thing was, you know, I, I like it's funny because I always said in the Black Crows, I played lead drums. Like you know, like I'm driving this. No one else knows that but me. But that's what I'm doing. And um, I. I, you know, on my basketball team in high school, one day my coach said, when you're our leading scorer, you know, we lose every game. And I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, every time you score the most point, he goes, you need to just rebound and you need to help. You know, it was drilled down and I played sweeper and soccer. I mean, everything was about you're facilitating, you're kind of running things, but you're not going to be the guy that yeah. scores the you goals. Be Bill you're Russell, not the leading rebound and pass the ball, start Thank the you. break and all that stuff. All that shit. Well, that's what some and draw. That's, that's, that's where you were. That's what I saw myself as. It was like, I'm going to be the guy that's going to, or, or whatever you want to say, no one's scoring on us, whatever it is. I'm going to protect the rim. I'm going to get the rewards. You guys go do all the shit. I'm the offensive line. Whatever you want to put it in sports, that's how the, the role of all the drummers. And even a guy like Ringo, which... Listen to Revolver and anything post-65. His parts are phenomenal. They're ir- no one else can play like that. But they never get in the way. It's like the third thing you notice. But then you're like, you're, you know, listen to Hello Goodbye or Here Comes but the Sun. And you're like, the, listen to that fucking guy. In the Beatles, guy. though, it seems like everybody knew what their role was. Without question. It was defined. Yeah. Also, nobody had a problem for a long time with Paul being the musical director. Mm-hmm. Telling Ringo what to right, play. Right, right. In the crows, on the other hand, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. If your book is any indication, yeah. those roles were not really very clear for a long time, and a lot of the resentment seemed to come. So I was going to ask, what makes uh, someone a good bandmate? Mm-hmm. And of course, your your book is all about how hard it is to be a good bandmate. Well, like like because like, egos get like the way a teammate, a good bandmate, and a good teammate share and a willingness to sacrifice. That's what all it comes down. Everybody's everybody's gifted and talented, and everybody's got a brilliant plan. How much of that are you willing to give to let other people have the same feeling that you have about, you know, I look at something, I say, I, I, I don't care whose idea it is. What's the best idea? Like, I really, I like being the dumbest guy in the room. I'm, I'm in fact, when I, when I start too. to think I'm the smartest guy in the room, I start looking for the door. Yeah, you're in and the that's wrong in, room. That's in any realm in life. Um, that's not something my bandmates shared. That's not their way of going about things. And so... Um, you know, if you're willing to give, you know, like, like as far as people say, what were you willing to do to keep the band together? Well, I, I, I just did it. You know what I mean? Like for a long time. Yeah, you kept the band a lo- together. A lot of people did, but, not just me. A but, lot of well, other people. Well, there are all did. these moments in the book, moments where you're at a real crossroads of deciding sure. if you're going to keep going and and sort of 
take, uh, allow the Robinson brothers to think of you the way they do, the way they made clear to you that yeah. they were thinking, right, right, and express right. that financially and in yep. a bunch of other ways. And there are times you're unwilling, but many times you're willing mm-hmm. to just go, all right, I'm going to keep this thing going. I'm going to yeah. figure it out. But then also, uh, here, the only part of the book, so the book is um, you one in reading it right? I'm I'm incredibly sympathetic to you, and I'm on your side. Then the only part I, I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. about the only part of it that I, and this may be because I'm a writer, but there's a lot of resentment from you and various bass players in the band about the money the Robinsons made from songwriting. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't. It comes across. About that. You you write a bunch of times. You write all the money they had versus the only us. issue is no, no. That, well, and that's this, you do write it in the book. I do. It's in but, the book but, a lot. But I've never. This is true. I've never had an issue with that. My issue was that wasn't enough for them. It's like you're making all this extra money. Great, God go with you because that helps me. And I'm I'm pushing team player. Yeah. When you then come after the money I'm making in addition to that, that's when I have a real issue. You're saying if they were saying from from live well, if, performances, but but the the the, ba- the band, you know, everyone's splitting money equally. On the side of that, there's publishing, which is just for them. And publishing that's fine. and songwriting. He's publishing because and songwriting. they did write. This I was going to say Without they question. did write those songs. Like because yeah. sometimes you'll talk about the way the band arranged them, and I, yeah. I I was left with the impression that maybe you think, and I'm interested in this, that arranging the songs counts as much as the. So- Songwriting. It, no, it doesn't. It, 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 it not on paper, not legally, and not financially. But the, you it, think it you, means you everything. Felt, it seems to me. Yes, this yeah. is what I'm saying. It seems to me yeah. you resented that they didn't under that in your mind they didn't understand. Jealous again isn't jealous again if I don't if Steve doesn't do what what he's doing. Well, it's with not this. jealous again if George doesn't do what he did. It's not jealous again. It's here's the thing we can and 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 the answer to that from a writer is always we could have done this with anybody and it's like well of course you could but you didn't. This is who did it. This is what happened. And the only thing any real teammate wants is acknowledgement for the role that you played and you did your best. And that's all anybody else. No one ever went to the brothers and said, hey, I wrote that. That never happened. And it certainly never happened with me. And in fact, in 1987, like before we'd done shit, Chris said to me once, he goes, well, me and Rich write the songs. I went, awesome. I'm not, I'm not a right. songwriter. Knock yourselves out. The problem is when... When that becomes like like everything else in the band, it's like, okay, you're doing all the interviews because you're the singer because that's normal, but that doesn't mean you're right. That doesn't mean that you suddenly dictate policy. Where the fuck did that come from? Like all those things that happened, fame and money make some people think, so now I, I the whole thing is me. And that certainly happened. It happens in a lot of bands. It absolutely happened in the Black Crows. Because you... you it, um. Because when they would, but a, okay, an example of something that's um, that I found fascinating in the book about this kind of thing was yeah. Chris making a decision about the kinds of shows. So I could see in the early days of the Black Crows, Chris and Rich would write these songs. You guys would work them up together. Sure. George would help streamline and, them and figure it out, which was all but, wonderful. But but also you guys would decide together kind of which songs you were going to play, mm-hmm. and which ones would make it. Sort of which of the songs Chris and Rich had ended up that ended up becoming great when you guys would all play them Mm -hmm. but then there's this moment and i did find this i read this moment and it was like oh yeah i've been in these situations where chris decides you you write you know chris decided the kind of gigs that he wanted to play the kind Mm -hmm. of songs he wanted to play he wanted to be in this dead fish world at Mm -hmm. a certain point that wasn't the black crows in your mind right but then you say these gigs were bad 
uh, this one in particular, you're like, it was a terrible gig. Uh, I, every song I wanted to go to sleep. I didn't understand why we were doing this, yeah. but then you say till this day, the real black crows fanatics say that's like the best gig of, course, of all yeah. time. Yeah. 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 So where does that leave you though? Because well, isn't it a valid thing for Chris Robinson who comes mm -hmm. across like the worst person in the world in the book? And I, you really believe it when you're reading it, but isn't it fair for Chris Robinson to say, okay, I, I wrote these songs. Yeah. These people are coming to see me now. Right. Now they're coming to see me. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, my brother too. I hate him, but I understand what his <laughs> yeah, appeal is. Yeah, because yeah. even though I mean it's the two of them, even if they yeah. hate each other, and isn't it fair for him to say, okay, if I'm only playing a two thousand instead of ten thousand, but if those are my two thousand who see the world the way I do, right. that's my art. Mm -hmm. Why is that not a fair thing for him to say? It's perfectly fair. It's also fair for me to say we're running the wrong offense. Like this is not the these are not what we're these are not the right people for this. Because he, you know, what we got was a result of us pulling back against it. That's still what do you worked. mean by that? I'm saying that those shows that that in like say '96, yeah, when it was good, it was really good. But it's the it's the fact that he wasn't given unfettered. You know, we didn't cut the tethers loose and follow him. Everyone's like, dude, bring it back around a little. You know what I mean? Like we're a rock and roll band. Like I never got, I never didn't want to rock. I don't, I don't want to just rock mindlessly. I'm not suggesting that. But the notion that you play no. large sections of music with no discernible form, that's, that's fine. But that's not who we were. It's not the Black Crows. It's not the Black, it's Crows. Not the Black Crows you signed on and for. It's not the, but it's, was he but it's on a journey as an artist? Yes, he would that, say that. Sure. Was he on a journey as an yeah, artist, though, yeah. that was like, well, if the Black Crows aren't included in it, that's fine. But you can't separate when you're in the band. Okay, so to this your point, get to. Fan, like, cause I'll come up to people and they'll go, you said you didn't like that gig, man. I love it. And I go, awesome. That's great. I, I you know, by the way, I like, like, I think I'm a great drummer. When someone else tells me they agree, I'm like surprised. Right. Oh, right on. <laughs> right. I don't give a shit if people agree with me. That's not what this is about. I have my view, and I'm content to have that view. I'm not trying to. This is not a campaign. I'm not. I'm not running for office. So within the fact, with the way I looked at the band, for better and much worse, was okay. These two thousand people really like it, but we're dying on stage. The rest of us in the band are looking at each other and dying. You're having a fucking blast. Great for you. We are wondering what the fuck we're doing. It's a testament to the band that those shows are that good because you're asking a basketball team to play rugby. Right. And we're like, sure. we were adept and we were sharp and we could, we, could give, we could deliver a lot of what he was looking for. But that doesn't mean that was our best use. Yeah, because I got as I don't like the Chris Robinson Brotherhood records. Like, I, but right. I listen to them. Yeah, I, I, I right because I think Chris is. I weirdly, I even reading your book while reading the book, I really didn't like Chris Robinson at all. Mm -hmm. But I do think he's a real artist. I do think that that guy sure is. is the real yeah. thing. Yeah. So I always listen to those records, and I wish there was more melody, and I wish yeah. there was more of a drive yeah. and a groove. But then I say to myself, well, he's not playing for me. Right, of course. He, I, that's okay. No, I'm a I Black Crows fan. I don't, he's not really playing for me I anymore. I don't begrudge his artistic vision. I mean, I, that's insane to think. I, it, of course, dude, do what you're doing. If you're going to do it in the Black Crows, and, and again, it sounds like I'm – trying to limit and say, stay in your lane and make the same album over and over. Not that at all. It's, it's really a sense of, it's the difference between any, and I, I put things but, in sports context, you know, the, 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 the right team with the right offensive But I'm interested in those dynamics story. because it goes back to this thing of where the drummer sits because yeah. the, if a drummer doesn't write songs, right. 
in a way, you either have to find the band that suits your... Because you were the perfect drummer for the Black Crows right. for those four albums. Mm-hmm. Then, But the question then is, are you, were you still the right drummer in your own head when they were trying to go into yeah, this because other when place? We're, yeah, because you, you get in the studio. I mean, I, you put a horse on the track, it's going to run. I mean, yes. when we're making new songs... You know, and for the record, when we would be putting new songs together... I might not like the song, but all I'm trying to do is save Make it. Make it work, I'm right? trying to yes. save it. Like, yes. okay, well, the least I can do is is really, you know, I, I, and I looked at myself, again, I, you know, there's a, a, the glue. Like, if I don't fuck it, if I'm not here, this thing is definitely not working. And so I looked at everything we ever did as, you know, my philosophy was you get a consensus, you make a plan, you all agree on what you're going to do, and then you go do it. Let the chips fall where they may. Let's all go together. That, that's ultimately all I ever wanted from a band. And the reason that I look at REM and, and bow down, and the reason I look at you 2 and bow down, because you know those guys are killing each other behind closed doors. And that's fine. That's normal. What, what drove me nuts from not day one, but from about four years in, was suddenly, wait, hold on, we're not all going together. I didn't care where we went. I just wanted to go together. Yeah, and I, I said those very words over and over and over again guys let's just what are we going to agree on and then let's fucking go that's the point of the whole fucking thing go be chris robinson then but if you're in a band well and it also seems weird because there were so many times when each guy would lean on you they all realized how smart you were Mm -hmm. they all knew you were not some dumb drummer they knew like intellectually you were their equal or their better Mm -hmm. they would each lean on you at times Mm -hmm. they would each come to you each of those dudes came to you at various times like I know I've drifted away. You're the man. You're well, my reason for being. Yeah. And then they would kind of, the moment you kind of propped them up and got them back to themselves, yeah. the, they would feel filled with that, right? Oh, and, dude. Yeah. And I can't imagine no, what that felt like for you. It's Well, after a while, it just becomes, it's so predictable. You know, it really, I used to always say, we're just in a hamster wheel. It's just, we're just running the same race over and over and over. It's, um... And, 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 you know, the, it's funny because I've had some people that have read the book that they, they miss a pretty key element. And maybe this is a, a, an indictment of my writing. I, I'm a mess. I mean, I'm, you know, like, like, like when you said earlier, like, I don't like Chris Robinson in this book. I don't like me in a lot of this book. I'm the guy that's, my, you know, my, 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 my codependency is, A, uh, my yes. greatest strength in that. But it's also, it's driving me crazy. I'm, my central nervous system was shot. Well, repeatedly. yeah, you're getting yo-yoed around by these guys. Yeah. Um, you're allowing yourself to be. Allowing myself. You're restraining to be. your impulse to kick everybody's ass once in a while. You yeah. do chest up to somebody. Yeah. And um, well, it was such a thing of, I, I felt this great, and, and a lot of this, you know, everybody's. You, you come from the family you come from, and my house that I grew up in, you know, like if you put on a open display publicly, that's just embarrassing. Right. What the fuck's wrong with you? Keep your shit together. And so. There, there were so many arguments, so many moments in the band where all you feel is emba- you're just embarrassed for these people. You don't step up and punch them and go, wake up. All right. you feel is, oh, my God, dude, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and, and then, like any family with addiction and with codependency, the band is a family, ultimately, and all the secrets are kept and the culture is established, and suddenly you're just, everybody's living this life that you don't even know how you got there. You're all just trying to keep it moving forward, and those day-to-day minute-to-minute interactions are just all it's like this this culture is formed around you and then suddenly you're immersed and then it takes a while to get out of it and go what what the fuck are we doing so how did you get strong enough for that moment when pete calls you and you finally say nope 
I'm not coming. And then he has to call you back and he goes, okay, I got you what you want. It was, well, I, well, when I left in 2001, yeah. I was, I was very much happy to go. I mean, it was cause I tried to, I was going to leave. Had you saved a little money at that point? Yeah. I was going to go. You didn't go. So you were able to, to not blow the money when those guys, even as yeah, those no, guys were. Yeah, no, I look back and go, man, I wasn't smart with my money, but I wasn't stupid. Right. And that, that's the big, it, it's really, that's the key. Just don't be stupid. It's huge. I mean, I mean, I got home from the first record and bought a Range Rover and was like, yeah. And about two weeks later, I just started feeling like an asshole. Like, I had that real issue. <laughs> really? Like, oh, I hate it. I bought season tickets to the Hawks, which I did not regret. I love that. Mm-hmm. But I'd pull up in a Range Rover and I was like, I'm just a dick. You know, I couldn't help it. I was like, and I, you know, you'll pick up your buddy to go get a beer and he's like, yeah, nice car, man. And you're like, yeah, but you've become just, a rock star. I know, but I was never, that's the, those weren't, you know, I'm, coming out of a fucking you know i just wanted to be an rem or you know yeah. i'd see the swimming pool cues and be like oh man check them out they're cool right. peter holsapple wasn't driving around no 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 the dbs didn't have range rovers DGs and chris stamey weren't driving yeah, around yeah. range rovers and so but but again but and i do look at that now and go that's me being stupid i mean because most guys would have and it's fine too you know it's just it's i beat myself up about all kinds of shit but um uh but but by the time I left, you know, I was going to leave in 99. I mean, I, I full-on made the call, and then Jimmy Page, <laughs> thankfully, had already called. He beat me to it by five minutes. And so when I left at the end of 2001... Yeah, when Pete says to you, hold on a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I was like... <laughs> That's a great moment in the book. I, it's, I mean, it's, it's so funny, because it, it was my birthday. So, I mean, I, every year I have a real easy reminder of like, oh, yeah. And so this was 20 years that just happened. Um, but when I left in 2001, I mean, I was super at peace i mean it had been coming for years and once johnny and mark you know after 97 it was very you know i said someone the other day i mean in a perfect world if you're gonna make this a movie about me emerging as the hero i would have left in 97 that was the clean time to go it was over and but yeah, and you saw that they were becoming bad guys but i wasn't ready i mean right. it was up to me you know i'm the one who went oh fuck what have i been doing you know right. like why am I not ready for this? I've seen this coming for seven years. You know, Johnny and I sat around in 1990 talking about, oh, they're going to fucking ruin right. this. You know, everybody did. The whole, everybody knew this is going to just explode one day. And then it basically did, and I wasn't ready. And I was like, well, you fucking idiot. And I'm like, how afraid have I been to just face what's so clear, you know? Has Rich, uh, have either of the brothers read the book? I don't know. Not that I know of. I mean, I didn't send it to him. You didn't? No. Has anyone asked him about it publicly yet or no? Chris Chris was asked about it, and he said, I, you know, I had 50 people text me his quote about... What was it? He said, someone said, well, would you ever write a book? He said something to the effect of, well, I'm actually a writer. Nice. <laughs> right, right away with the dig. And then something about, he said, I was on the sidelines and I wasn't there anyway, so who cares what I think, basically. Amazing. I'm not a part of the creative process. Oh, really? Oh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, it's. I mean, and does it still hurt to hear no, that? No, God, no. I, I listen. <laughs> that sucker can and has and will say anything. It, it's, and 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 this is not me kicking at him. His words mean literally nothing because they change from minute to minute. It's whatever he says at that minute in that moment is what he says, and it's. It took a while to get used to that, but I've been used to that fact for a long time. Well, yeah. I mean, even though I'm somebody who puts primacy on songwriting, the first huge hit... And by the way, so do I. But the first huge hit you guys had wasn't a song Chris and Rich wrote. 
It was a song that starts with you playing a groove on an Otis Redding record. Go figure. Right? I mean, no, I just want to... I mean, it is by, by the way, you playing there, a drum there, groove there, there was on a, an Otis Redding record. And and it's the embarrassing thing is that I had to point that out one time when we were sitting on the... You know, we're having a big play or whatever. And, and I was like, what's the first fucking thing anyone ever heard from this band? Right. I go, guys, fuck it, it you know. It's you drumming. Yeah. Alone with nothing else happening. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, of course. No, that's... So that... To say that you weren't... Uh, Essential to the sound of Black Crow no, is an insane it's, thing to it's, say. It's saying that Dennis Rodman had nothing to do with the 96 Bulls. Go ahead, say it, and believe it all you like. That's fine. I, I don't care. But you take certain people out of things. It's like saying that Mark Ford had nothing to do with the sound of the band. It's lunacy. It's absolute lunacy. But, you know, again, I... I yeah, R.E.M. made a lot of great it, records after Bill Barry, but none of them, not, were, not, R, none of them a, were R.E.M. And I don't think they would even argue... And my, yeah, they, they should wouldn't. have continued. Why wouldn't you? But By don't way, act like it's Van the same Halen thing. without Michael Anthony is not don't, Van Halen. Of course it's not. Of course, you know, to their eternal credit for. And by the way, you know, how many times you see people go, "Why is Jimmy Page? Why doesn't he do this? Why didn't he do that?" I don't know. But I tell you one thing: they did. They never came back. They under Led Zeppelin fully understood. We're not Led Zeppelin. And it would be legit for them to do it with Jason, course, even though you think he's not could. the right drummer no, for well, it. Well, it would I be said, legit. Well, I said that because no one is. Right. I don't mean that. No, no, uh, no one plays the groove the way that John Bonham did, no doubt. All right, a couple last uh, questions. Um, can anyone stay centered when they become a rock star? Have you ever seen it? Because the book is about... Well, it's about... Um, uh, well, you know, no. The answer is no. I mean, I mean because... Can you come be, back to yourself at some point? Yeah, sure. You can. I mean, I feel like I'm... I, I, you know, I'm still friends with all my high school friends. I'm still me. You know what yes. I mean? Now, I had... I disappeared. But you personally didn't become famous the way no, no, that Chris no, no, did. No, that's I was getting there. Like, yeah. I it was it was really hard for me, and I was the fucking drummer in a band that never had pop hits. Right. You know what I mean? Even when Jealous Again, those are those I are. I mean, you were on MTV though, but, but, over sure, and over sure, sure. and over and over again. But there was songs. another level, even at the time. Like we didn't have Sweet Child of Mine. Right. Like we didn't do that. And then we didn't do what Nirvana did. That's a really good point. Like Steven Adler was much more famous than Way you personally. I, I Even always, if Chris and Axel yeah. were both super no. famous, the, we know everything about the other musicians I in Guns N' Roses. I have a two block radius from any gig the, the Crows are playing where I'm pretty fucking famous. You get me three blocks away, I'm just a dude in line for coffee. You know what I mean? It was like, which was great. I took full advantage of that. And I remember right before the second album came out, you know, Chris said, "Hey, you want to go fishing?" Which not that we didn't normally do that, but but he his he had a family friend with a pond, and they were his good fish. And he said, "Let's go fishing tomorrow morning." And I was like, well, "Okay, you know, I don't fish, but let's go." And I picked him up at like six a.m. and we're in my Range Rover, and we ran through a McDonald's drive-through to get coffee. And this is like, I mean, this is spring of '92, and we're in like Duluth, Georgia. And the girl at the thing, she's like, two coffees? Oh, my God! Like, she saw Chris. And I had short hair. I'm just a dude in a ranger. I look like a banker. And then she saw Chris and, like, literally, like, just lost her mind. And as we pulled away, we both went, that's fucking weird. You know, like, it was like, you know, we all had those moments of, like, whoa, dude. And he did. You know, when you were famous in 92, you were fucking famous. It's not like now. It was a very different thing. And, and. I've never begrudged him for having difficulty navigating that because anybody fucking would. No question about it. The thing that we all used to tell him regularly was, dude, but you can c come back into the cocoon. We got you. Like everybody, I, I do say this, Johnny especially and me and and then Mark and Ed, Pete, George, we had people around that were always saying, guy, we're, we're, let's stay here. We're a unit. 
and all the other people around the brothers were more than up to the challenge and task at hand. More than up to that. Everybody was, we had the right people at, at several different times. And it was like, guys, trust us. This is a team. You know, when they'd complain about, and Chris would get really overrun with, it's just too much. And we'd go, we get it. Hank, dude, does chill. Part of you, uh, does part of you wish that that thing could have still... Oh, fuck it. Dude, it's like, I, I'm, I'm not, it's funny, because like, I'm generally... I mean, we just met, but I, you know, I'm a happy guy. I'm a good, I'm in a good place. I'm not angry or bitter. And I know I'm not because I used to be, yes. I know, I know the difference yes. very clearly, but it's sad. I'll never not be sad. I mean, this book to me isn't bitter. It's sad. It's like, fuck man, we had this thing. And, and when I say we had it and we blew it, it's not about millions of records, man. We had that thing where when the door shut and we were in a room, we could look at each other and know. Like, man, we just did this thing that we couldn't have even had the smarts to dream about doing. We were headlining festivals in Europe in 93. Like, fucking headlining Glastonbury and, and Rock and Ring and all these festivals. And backstage, we always had a, they have a trailer. We, we packed a giant tent and filled it with rugs and beanbag chairs and hookah pipes. And we had a stereo the size of that wall. And at all these festivals, we were ground zero. Every other band came to our tent. And we spent that summer in that place and it was like we would be i remember like you know you'd walk in and Sinead o'connor and and joe elliott and chris are having a beer and i'm sitting there talking to some guy from ugly kid joe or what it didn't matter and and it was great and, and we'd leave and we would get on stage and play and as much as the crowds liked it we had this brief you know two three year run where we felt we did feel good and we would we had each other's backs and that you just that's the most special thing hey man. on earth, and that's what always that's what kills me. Hey man, you had a um, a time in your life when you were in arguably the best rock band in the world. I, I, I agree, full on. I don't, I don't, uh, and, I, and I don't feel weird saying that. I would, I'm saying that gig, those two gigs that I saw mm -hmm. at, at either the Whiskey or the Roxy, and then. Yeah. Um, Cat at house. the Cat Club. Cat, cat House Club in L.A. And, Ricky Rack. No, but I'm LA. talking about New York. The oh, Cat oh, Club oh, in New oh, York. Oh, that one. Yeah, yeah. No, the you Roxy here. The, 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 L.A. was either the Roxy no, no. or the Whiskey. But we played here. You played the Cat Club here for sure. I know. Sure. And then we played. But wasn't there a Roxy here as well? Uh, there was a Ritz here. A Ritz. Yes. Did you see that? That was later. No. no okay. I was at the Cat Club okay. gig. Yeah, yeah. Right when the record came yeah. out. That's on YouTube. That whole gig. Oh, it is? There's MTV was there. And they interviewed us after, and they shot a bunch of segments, and you can find that gig. I'll and go that look gig, for it. you know, what's funny is that we saw the video for that, and it settled this big band debate because at that time, you know, we'd be on stage, and Chris was always going like, "Come on, you know, like faster, faster," and we're playing songs at like hyper speed, and he's going, "Pick it up!" And then we saw that, and we and the rest of us were like. Yeah, dude, <laughs> we're playing fast we're enough. We're playing fast enough. It was this whole thing. But like, you guys destroyed. No, and, we um, were. We were. We found our. By the summer of '90, we were a really good band. By by '92, '93, '94, '95. Those mid '90s, though, it was it was a special. It was a unique. Wasn't just a good band. It was its own universe, and that yeah, that was what you guys created a whole world. When yeah, you yeah, for stage. sure. It's true. For well, sure. hey, Steve Gorbin, uh, thanks for doing this. Thanks for writing this book. What a great thing to get the insight like i said on the blurb it is like um almost famous from the point of view of the drummer who saw all of it and the book goes into the drugs and the sex and the fights and um and your journey from this kid uh who wanted to be a drummer to being a drummer in one of the biggest bands in the world and and um 
I look forward to seeing the next steps in your life, your radio show, and all the rest of it. So thank you, brother. Thanks. Where can people find you on on Twitter? What's your name? S G S F O X. S G S Fox. So go to that on Twitter. You can find me at Brian Copeland. You can email me, email me at the moment bk at gmail.com. Go get the book. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time.